Welcome back to the Evidence-Based Rheumatology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Putman, and this is episode 34, the associations of dietary cholesterol or egg consumption with incident cardiovascular disease and mortality. This was published in JAMA in 2019 by Zhang et al. Now, I am excited to talk about this paper. I know this is not, strictly speaking, rheumatologic, but patients who have rheumatologic diseases do eat food, and I do find myself counseling people about diet quite a lot. Now, before I go on, let me give a couple disclaimers. The first one is that I don't really believe in nutritional epidemiology. I don't mean to offend anyone by that, but I think that it's a field that has a number of methodological issues that I'll talk about sort of towards the end of the podcast. The second one is that I eat eggs. Usually I have two eggs for breakfast, and that puts me into the higher end of egg consumption in this paper, thereby putting me into the highest risk of cardiovascular disease bucket. So at a minimum, there's some motivated reasoning at work here. The last thing I want to say is that I did actually have a chance to meet with the first author of this paper, uh, Victor Zong. We had a great conversation, and he's a really good guy. I think that this topic is relatively heated. There was already a Twitter dust-up over it. And I think that people should all just take a step back and treat the folks who are investing in these questions as if they're coming from a place of good intentions. After talking to Victor, I think he absolutely approached this topic in an honest method with a lot of methodologic rigor and not intending to ruin egg consumption for all of us at the outset. I think he's a good scientist. I think we all need to give each other the benefit of the doubt and try to approach things from an objective perspective as much as is humanly possible. So with those disclaimers out of the way, let's get into the paper itself, then I'll talk about some of my concerns with it, and finish with my concerns about the field of nutritional epidemiology itself. For background, the 2015 to 2020 Dietary Guidelines for Americans, which were recently published, made two somewhat conflicting points. The first was that cholesterol is not a nutrition of concern for overconsumption, which did fly in the face of prior guidelines. And they said that individuals should eat as little dietary cholesterol as possible while consuming a healthy eating pattern. I find that statement very vague, and it seems to also contradict their statement that cholesterol is not a nutrient of concern. Some of this stems from the inconsistencies of prior data. Some studies had demonstrated an association between cholesterol and uh, cardiovascular disease, and others had not. To address this question, these authors pulled six cohorts from the Lifetime Risk Pooling Project. This is actually a pretty impressive epidemiologic endeavor. There's 20 community-based prospective cohorts with really tens and tens and tens of thousands of patients included. For this particular study, there were six cohorts that assessed the dietary intake variables that they needed. Those were the ERIC study, the cardiac study, the FHS or the Framingham Heart Study, and then the Framingham Offspring Study, as if we hadn't harassed the good people of Framingham enough, the Jackson Heart Study, and the MESA study. The authors included all participants in these studies, except for those who had reported an energy intake of less than 500 kcals per day, or greater than 6,000 kcals per day, or patients who had missing study data. This is an important point. I understand why they excluded people who had less than 500 kilocalories per day or more than 6,000, because that's not really plausible. I track my dietary information very closely, and I can assure you that there has never been a day when I ate 6,000 calories. It is almost impossible. Similarly, if someone continues to eat less than 500 kilocalories a day, they will eventually waste away into nothing. Neither of these results are plausible. This is a good way to talk about my first problem with this, is that these food frequency questionnaires are highly, highly problematic. It's generally done by self-report, and it's generally done by people remembering what they've eaten. Why is that a problem? Well, 
Pop quiz, what did you eat last Tuesday? Most people have a relatively poor memory of the things that they've been eating, and when they do report their food, it's often biased. Now that bias can go a number of different ways. Say you're someone who's already obese, perhaps you're really conscious of the dietary decisions you think are bad because you're super worried about your health, and if you were conditioned to think that eggs are bad because of, say, some dietary guidelines suggesting that they're bad for your heart, you may remember eating eggs more than someone who is healthy and not obese and doesn't think eggs are a big deal. Now, because these studies generally used different food frequency questionnaires, the authors had to standardize them so that they all kind of matched each other. Not unreasonable. And I should note that even though I am complaining, the food frequency questionnaires in these studies have been validated. So it's not like this is an entirely made up data science. The outcomes that they used in the study were incident cardiovascular disease and all-cause mortality. I love it. Those are great outcomes, and they're things that patients pretty much universally care about. Vital status was known for 98% of participants, which is excellent. And their covariate assessment was really thorough. So they assessed age, sex, race, ethnicity, education, lifestyle factors, body mass index, uh, blood pressure, lipids, medication use, and medical conditions. A lot of these epidemiologic studies don't have an adequate assessment of covariates and ultimately wind up, in my opinion, falling up short because of unmeasured confounding. These authors had a pretty healthy list. There are a couple that I think they're missing that I think are worth noting. So one is family history. Another one is region. The way people eat eggs in crunchy Vermont is very different from the way people eat eggs in South where I went to school. And finally, they didn't really assess for socioeconomic status. Again, the kinds of people who are eating eggs um, and living in gated communities are different than the kinds of people who are eating eggs and not living in gated communities. And even though educational attainment is a decent surrogate for this, I think socioeconomic status is an important confounder that they weren't able to assess. Statistic analysis was rigorous. I would say very rigorous. Talking to Victor Zong about this, they did try to assess this from every possible angle, and I think they did a really excellent job. They used cause-specific hazard models, which are a little bit stronger than the general hazard ratios that people use. They also did six sensitivity analyses. What's a sensitivity analysis? Well, it's where you do your analysis the way you think you should do it, but then you change some of the parameters to make sure that your findings are robust. What did they do? Well, they censored events that were done found during the first two to five years of follow-up. That's nice because you can imagine that someone who has some sort of simmering cardiovascular disease may be more aware of their condition. Maybe they're paying more attention to the food they're eating. And that would introduce confounding because they're more likely to report some sort of exposure than the other people. Another thing they did was to arbitrarily censor patients at 10 and 20 years of follow-up. They dropped some of the cohorts out. Perhaps one of the cohorts themselves was very biased. So they went back and said, what if we remove this one? Does it significantly change our results? They did a couple other things as well. And I think they're all pretty appropriate. So, I mean, the authors of this paper really made a genuine attempt to question their own findings. I think that's important in science. And I think it speaks to the rigor with which they approached this topic. So what did they find? Now, this study included an astonishing number of patient participants. 29,615 were included. And since each of those participants was followed for a significant amount of time, there were 524,376 person years of follow-up. That is impressive. Now, I would say one of my rules of thumb for assessing observational data is that it's not the size of the cohort that matters, it's the size of the hazard ratio. 
What does that mean? Well, the problem with a data set that's this enormous is that you can find very, very small variations and slap a p-value on it that will be statistically significant. That sounds like it could be a good thing, but the problem with finding small variations is that a large study doesn't mean you have less bias. So if there's some sort of systemic bias that impacts the validity of your findings, getting more and more participants into your study doesn't remove the bias. It just ensures that you'll be able to prove some sort of statistical difference. If you have a relatively small effect size and an enormous study, it's possible that you're really just performing an incredibly accurate measure of the underlying bias of the question, the methodology, the literature, et cetera, itself. So this study winds up being a classic example of that. They have a lot of participants, and then they had a relatively small effect size. For their primary outcome, which is incident cardiovascular disease and all-cause mortality, they found adjusted hazard ratios of 1.17 and 1.18, respectively. So that's not that big of a difference. They calculated an absolute risk difference based on both of those, and the absolute risk difference for eating eggs on incident cardiovascular disease was 3.4% absolute risk difference for all-cause mortality was 4.4%. So it's a relatively small risk difference. The next interesting thing that they found were that eggs and dietary cholesterol were not independently associated with all-cause mortality or cardiovascular disease. Instead, the effect of either seemed to be attenuated by either one of them. So this suggests that the association between eggs and all-cause mortality is related to the cholesterol content of eggs which as far as foods are concerned, eggs are a relatively high cholesterol food. Regarding their main outcome measures, they saw that there was a dose response to egg consumption. For every additional half egg consumed per day, there is a higher risk of incident cardiovascular disease. If you're trying to build a plausible case for eggs being causative, which is a very dangerous word here, you do wanna see that sort of dose response. They did a number of subgroup analyses that were all interesting, but honestly, I don't think it's worth delving into them too deeply. Problem number one is that the authors themselves say these are all exploratory. They weren't intending to look into these. And so this is kind of one of those fact-finding data mining missions that I'm always skeptical of. Before we put this in context, I do think it's meant worth noting that those sensitivity analyses they did all supported their finding. Dropping cohorts, excluding events in the first two and five years, censoring participants at 10 and 20 years, None of those materially changed the significant associations that they saw. Like I said from the beginning, I think the authors here did a good job of performing a rigorous analysis of this question. That being said, I have a number of significant concerns with this paper. Now the first couple I've already discussed, but I wanna reemphasize. A, I don't really trust food frequency questionnaires, and I think there's a high chance of what we call differential exposure misclassification. So what is differential exposure misclassification? Let's think about a different example to kind of put context to this. Say you ask people, how many calories have you consumed over the past week? Patients who are obese may be more likely to be influenced by things like social desirability bias, and they may underreport the number of calories that they consumed because obesity is therefore associated with a difference in reporting and then also with a difference in the outcome of cardiovascular disease that biases your sample. I suspect there's some bias related to differential exposure and misclassification, and I think that it's something you just can't get around. There's nothing you can really do because your food frequency questionnaires are just what you're stuck with. The next thing is clinically significant versus statistically significant. 
So what does a hazard ratio of 1.1 actually mean? Or put more plainly, how many people need to stop eating eggs to avoid one incident of cardiovascular disease? Well, they give an absolute risk difference, and if you flip that on its head, something like 94 people would need to stop eating eggs to bring about one less event. That's a lot of people changing their behavior. This comes to my next issue, which is if you tell people to stop eating eggs, they're not going to stop just eating eggs. They're going to replace it with something. So what will they replace it with? I can tell you, before I ate eggs for breakfast, I really loved muffins. I do not think muffins were good for me, but they were really tasty. I suspect of those 90-some people that you'll need to get off of eggs, a large portion of them are going to start eating Frosted Flakes and Honey Nut Cheerios, etc. And I just don't think that that would be a public health good. So finding an association between egg consumption and poor outcomes doesn't mean that substituting something else in there is going to change those outcomes in a positive way. The other big boogeyman is residual confounding. The people who are eating two eggs a day are just different than the people who are not eating eggs. A great example of this is in studies addressing Diet Coke versus Coca-Cola. There have been consistent associations between Diet Coke and obesity, suggesting that Diet Coke may cause obesity. Again though, the kind of people who drink Diet Coke are just different from the kind of people who drink regular Coke. I was chunky when I was a kid, and I have a little fat person inside of me that just wants to crush Ben and Jerry's. Because of that, I drink a lot of diet soda. Now that makes me very different from a couple friends of mine who just happen to be skinny, have always been skinny, and are able to drink as much Coke as they want without really gaining weight. You can't really measure a difference between me and them. We have similar education, we have similar demographics, we have similar activity behaviors, but there is something different between us and we can't really measure it very well. So I think there's residual confounding from the idea that the people who were eating a lot of eggs are just different in some fundamental way than the people who weren't. Now I've danced around this word causative a lot, and I wanna emphasize again that the authors of this paper were careful not to say that it was causative. In a New York Times article on this, Dr. Allen, who is the senior author said, this study found a very consistent association, but eggs have some advantages. You do want to reduce the number of eggs, especially egg yolks, but we don't want people to walk away thinking they shouldn't eat any eggs. That's not the right message. That's fair, but putting this out in the world kind of conveys that message. Now, last but not least, I just don't think that egg consumption explains what's wrong with America. Now, egg consumption here is relatively low compared to the rest of the world. Egg consumption has not gone up dramatically at the same time we have seen dramatic increases in the rates of cardiovascular disease, obesity, all-cause mortality. So why the massive increase in cardiovascular disease if eggs are solely to blame? Now this concern kind of gets into what I want to talk about next, which is my concerns about nutritional epidemiology itself. Now there's been a lot of discussion about this lately. I know I talk about JP Ioannidis relatively frequently, but he is the most cited physician in the world. Now I recently saw him quoted as saying, and I quote, nutritional epidemiology is a scandal, it should just go to the waste bin. When the most cited physician on earth says things like that, you should take note and think about why. Now here are a couple reasons, and again, I'm biased here, that I have issues with nutritional epidemiology. Now the first one is just an overall gestalt. I do research in vasculitis. What has happened in vasculitis over the past 30 years? In ink-associated vasculitis, for instance, we took a disease that was not universally fatal, but almost always fatal. Upwards of 80% of patients with untreated GPA 
don't make it five years. Today, we have prednisone, we have cyclophosphamide, we have rituximab, we have options, and over 90% of patients with GPA can make it five years. That's an incredible material objective increase in the quality of life of patients with GPA that has been brought about by the quality of the literature in vasculitis. Nutritional epidemiology, we've had 50 years of this now. It may be that Americans are uniquely bad at listening to advice, but it may also be that the advice has been bad. Now, what contributes to that bad advice? Here's a couple problems in particular. The first is that we have tons of residual confounding. I discussed that especially with the paper itself, but when you think about this, all of these health behaviors are frequently related to other health behaviors. So when you think you're assessing the benefit of acai berries, maybe you're actually assessing the benefit of being someone who eats acai berries and can afford berries that no one else can pronounce. These kinds of problems are just endemic in this literature and make it hard for me to believe any hazard ratio that isn't quite large. The second is that there are infinite studies we can do on these data sets. This paper addressed six particular cohort studies. Do you think this is the first time anyone looked at that cohort study and made a hypothesis about what's associated with cardiovascular disease? There have probably been hundreds of hypotheses applied to this data set. And from each of these data sets, there are dozens, if not hundreds of publications already in the literature. That's scary enough, but then there's probably hundreds, if not thousands of times that someone did some sort of analysis on this data set and then didn't publish their findings. Whenever you look at a paper like this, you should feel this weight of unpublished data weighing in on anything you think about it. The problem with unpublished data is it introduces significant problems of publication bias. The kinds of studies that are published are the ones that confirmed a researcher's bias, the ones that were interesting enough to get it past uh, the filters that um, journals themselves apply, or the ones that lent themselves to some sort of fancy methodological approach. Now, the next thing is that a lot of these studies are actually designed in a way to confirm their biases. There's an infamous one earlier this year on alcohol that showed that as you drink more alcohol, outcomes get worse. That would be really handy, and that made for a great story, but the researchers themselves excluded patients who didn't drink. They did this on the grounds that patients who don't drink are just fundamentally different from people who do, and putting them in there will confound our analysis. Except that if you look at their data, the people who didn't drink actually had worse outcomes than the people who drank one or two drinks. So wouldn't the rig rigorous methodological way to, to do this be to say that one or two drinks seems to be better than none, and one or two drinks seems to be better than lots of drinks. That's how I would have done it, but they had a bias going into it, and they decided to publish on that bias. The second problem with this is that if you think that there's a lot of confounding between people who don't drink and people who drink a little bit, how is that not also applied to people who drink a ton and people who drink a little bit? In both cases, there may be significant unmeasured confounding. But in this literature, people get away with this kind of thing all the time, where they design their analysis to answer the question in the way that most confirms their own biases. A lot of this is theoretical, but the concordance between observational studies and RCTs is really poor. So beta-carotene is a great example. Beta-carotene itself had a much larger hazard ratio for improving mortality than eggs have of worsening in this study. Beta-carotene had been studied in many, many, many cohort studies, many of them showing this benefit, but when we put it in a randomized controlled trial, it had no benefit whatsoever. Vitamin D recently went through a similar thing. 
We'd see these associations in observational studies, but when you actually randomize patients to receive them, doesn't seem to help very much. Now, the final thing I want to address, and this is some pushback that I got by pushing back against this paper, is that data are good and getting any data is better than no data. Now, I don't think that's true. The authors do say here that the relationship isn't causal, but people are going to interpret it as such. Just type this into the New York Times and you'll already see it happening. The second problem is that we've been down this road before. Giving erroneous health information does influence how people act, and I think it does so in a negative way. Go look at the old school food pyramid. They actually recommended eating 6 to 11 servings of bread per day. Do you really think that eating 10 slices of day is a smart thing to do? Nutritional epidemiology has given us a lot of pearls like that. We don't eat fat now, so instead we, drink, we eat yogurt that has 30 or 40 grams of sugar in it. That seems like a bad decision to me. That's just my bias, but I also don't think that flawed information is necessarily a benign or good thing. I think flawed information could be a good thing, it could be benign, or it could be harmful, and I think studies like this might be harmful. In conclusion, I think that this study was a very rigorous approach to a complicated question that was done by authors with the best of intentions. I do think that it's strong enough that the people who are pro-egg, pro-fat in your diet should pause a little bit, and I especially don't feel as comfortable recommending that kind of a diet to a patient anymore after seeing this information. That being said, some flaws within the study itself, in particular residual confounding and the problem of differential misclassification of exposures, and problems with the field itself, in particular the problem of publication bias and the multiplicity of hypotheses that are being done, result in me just not really believing this finding. Feel bad saying that after I met the authors who are great people, but I'm going to keep on eating eggs. I hope that was interesting, even though it wasn't rheumatology. Be sure to tune in next week when I promise I will talk about a paper in the rheumatologic literature. Thanks, everybody, and have a great week. Bye.